Hi friends, it's Maya back with another episode of the Gaysian Podcast. You know, the podcast that's all about exploring the queer and trans Asian Pacific Islander Middle Eastern and Desi experience. I am super stoked about today's episode. Um, and not just because I say that all the time. I mean, honestly, I'm stoked about every episode. This podcast is a ton of fun to do and these guests are really, really dope. But... I am super stoked about this week's episode because it's about one of my favorite things, representation in film and television. And my guest, total badass. His name is Brian Hu, does so many cool things. He's an assistant professor of film, television, and new media at San Diego State University. Um, he talks a lot about film history and theory, and he does a lot of research about Chinese language film. Um, he also is the artistic director of the Pacific Arts Movement, an organization that is best known for putting on the San Diego Asian Film Festival, and he hosts a podcast called Saturday School. He does a ton of really incredible work in the space of thinking about, talking about, and pushing the conversation forward about Asian American film and Asian American film history, and it was a total joy getting to talk to him about this current moment uh, in which Asian American representation seems to be really, really at the forefront, and talking about whether this is a cyclical thing or if he thinks that this push for representation of not just Asian American stories or voices or faces, um, but all marginalized um, stories, if, if this is a thing that is unique and it is going to last um, for longer than just a quote-unquote cycle. Um, I'm also very excited about this episode releasing this week because it coincides with the Philadelphia Asian American Film Festival, which is currently running in Philly right now, and which I'm so excited that the Gaysian Project is a community partner again for an incredible block of queer programming. We are also co-hosting with a number of awesome organizations that are local to Philadelphia to put on a queer Asian brunch potluck on Saturday, November 16th from 10 to 12 p.m. at the Asian Arts Initiative. Join us, the Philadelphia Asian American Film Festival, um, Philadelphia Asian Performing Artists Association, and Philly Asian and Queer, and just meet your fam, man! Um, eat some great food and join us as we celebrate the, that amazing block of queer programming that I just mentioned. It is amazing and there's so many really, really awesome stories. Also food. How can you turn down awesome food? I hope to see all of the Philly listeners there. Um, and if you want more information about the event, you can check out uh, the link in our bio of our Instagram. Um, we'll be posting more info as the days kind of lead up, but really, really excited about it. Anyways, back to this podcast, um, because Brian is just really cool. And I'm not just saying that because of his accolades. I'm specifically saying that because we have the same opinions about Star Wars, which all of, all of you know is the most important thing when judging another human being. What are your opinions on Star Wars, and do they align with mine? If they do, you're a cool person. If if they don't, you're just canceled forever. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> and with that, without further ado, this is the Gaysian Podcast with Brian Hu.
Hey, Brian. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really, really excited to talk to you, especially because as I literally just mentioned to you, I just finished rewatching the Blinded by the Light trailer <laughs> and am still a little bit very much emotional um, after that, uh, but which is very relevant to what we're going to talk about today because you are very much involved in, um, you know, Asian American cinema and representation and, and conversations around that. Um, so before we dive in, would you mind introducing yourself to the folks listening? Yeah, my name is Brian Hu. I do a number of things. Um, I guess my full-time gig is I'm an assistant professor of film, TV, and new media at San Diego State University, which is basically a way of saying that I teach film history, film theory. I do research about um, ch mostly about Chinese language films, um, but increasingly my interests have um, veered also towards Asian American film and media. And largely that is because of my other work. Um, I'm the artistic director of an organization called Pacific Arts Movement, and we're best known for putting on the San Diego Asian Film Festival, which is now in its 20th year. And this festival, uh, about a third of it is dedicated to Asian American cinema, and the other two thirds is to just incredible work of film coming out of the entire continent of Asia. So if you imagine like the biggest continent in the world and having to somehow distill that into 160 films. Um, that's what me and a team of programmers helps to bring, put together and then bring to San Diego. Um, I also have a podcast called Saturday School, which I co-host with uh, Ada Singh, who is of Times Orange County. Um, and this podcast is, I, I, it started with, Ada and I used to be journalists and uh, we used to cover the Asian American entertainment and art scene out of Los Angeles. And when we were doing that, we just became enamored with all these films. So this is about 15 years ago. And we realized that 15 years later, nobody knows these movies anymore. And if you think about it, like a film from 2006 should not be considered ancient. Like we should not have forgotten this already, but that's somehow become the case. Um, largely because Asian American films are, they don't have kind of the distribution muscle that a lot of like these studio films have. And so it takes a little bit extra reminder <laughs> of, of this kind of history. Um, and also, for us, it's because in the last few years, there's been a resurgence of interest in Asian American cinema with films like Crazy Rich Asians. And everyone's talking about these films as if they're completely unprecedented. And so Ada, Ada and I, through this podcast, Saturday School, is here to remind us that actually there's a ton of these. And if you like these new films, um, tap into the archive to find uh, like what we've been doing for decades. If you don't like these new Hollywood, um, like Hollywood endorsed Asian American films, you know, we've been doing this indie style for decades and maybe that's where you're going to find your inspiration. So, um, yeah, that's my other identity as, as a podcaster. Um, I like, I love what you were talking about with, uh, Saturday school? Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I was like, oh no, did he say Saturday or Sunday? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, no, because that was actually one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about today. Like, you know, we're in this kind of like Asian renaissance in like film and me in television. And it feels like a lot of the conversations surrounding that are like, oh my God, this is unprecedented. This has never happened before. Like we've never had a crazy rich, you know, like all of these mm -hmm. things where it feels 
like the conversation is like, this is so groundbreaking. And I feel like in a lot of senses it is. Um, and maybe that's by virtue of the fact that with social media, like the conversations aren't held in a wider space. Um, but I don't know, I, I like wanted to talk to you about like how you see this as somebody who has been in, you know, involved in and around the entertainment scene for so long. Like, do you feel like this Asian renaissance is like something that is as groundbreaking as a lot of conversations make it out to be? And like, do you see it as being something that is long, you know, like has the potential to really be long lasting um, or, you know, a kind of like a cyclical thing? Like it's hot yeah. now. Uh, I'm so I'll be honest, um, when last year happened, last year being when uh, we had films like Searching starring John Cho, we had Crazy Rich Asians starring all, all, a, a, like dozens of incredible Asian diasporic talent. Um, people were calling it you know, um, Asian August and like something was going on. And I was really suspicious because I see these things happening in waves. Like I remember when um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon happened yes. in 2000. And I mean, that's not an Asian American film, although Ang Lee is kind of a hybrid figure. I mean, he's largely based in the United States. He's been living here for decades. He's made one of the classic Asian American films, The Wedding Banquets, uh, also one of the classic kind of American queer films. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, yeah, and, and so we thought that at that moment, this was going to be a turning point. And it's also like this discovery that it's not just... Americans who want to watch these films, it's all over the world and they can get in on that action. Um, and of course the explosion of the Chinese market. And then what did that turn into? Nothing really for Asian Americans. Um, I mean, like Sony started investing in a few Chinese movies and I mean, does that help you if you are a Asian American actor trying to make it in Hollywood? Not really. Um, does that really help you as a Asian American on the schoolyard getting picked on at school? Like it doesn't really help you in that either. Yeah. And it so didn't really go anywhere. And then in 2002 slash 2003, Better Luck Tomorrow happened. Yes. Um, and this so is the great. film. Yeah. What an incredible movie. And yeah. I think at that time, we didn't even realize how lasting would be um, that impact. And, or that the director, Justin Lin, would now be like the billion dollar director of Hollywood making the Fast and the Furious films. Yeah. Um, and we were just hoping like, wow, could this open a door? Um, and I remember when that film it premiered at Sundance, it got these legendary standing ovations. People were talking about the movie. It got a huge um, distribution deal from MTV Films at the time. And that was huge. Like MTV Films. It's not like a little art film um, distribution, a distributor um, that puts out little films in little theaters in, in like two cities in the country. Um, this is MTV. I remember watching, seeing on TV, like the commercials for an Asian American film and like with characters who look like they could have grown up with me. Um, yeah. That was, I, like, I remember yeah. like seeing the MTV, like it being from MTV and instantly being like, Oh, this is cool. And like that, you know, like the fact that it was distributed by like MTV films, I was like, Oh, this is cool. Like it's Asians and they are cool. Uh, felt like so huge to me. Yeah, what a badge of honor. And this is also when MTV was a lot cooler than it is now. Yeah, I, mean, I, don't, I don't think yeah. anyone's expecting that. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember like all the sort of community galvanizing that happened around that film. Like I was in college at that time and um, like everyone on campuses, especially Asian Americans, are whispering, like, are you going to watch Better Luck Tomorrow? Uh, we have to support it. If we don't support it now, 
Hollywood will never get the message and they'll never do this again, which is exactly what we heard you know, years later when, we, when there are more films like this coming out. And it did really well uh, for, open, like, for its opening in terms of um, like per screen average, kind of the way that The Farewell did recently. And then there was potential excitement, but it didn't really turn into anything. Um, the actors in there, there was hope that they would all, that, that was like their pipeline to Hollywood. And I mean, like, what's Roger Fan doing now? Sun King yeah. kind of has been around. Um, it hasn't, yeah. I mean, it's not, it wasn't really the game changer that we thought it was. And so maybe for me, um, I stopped looking for game changers um, because I'm not going to wait on Hollywood to change the game or allow the game to be changed. And so that's when I really just started diving into independent films um, because especially at the, in the Asian American film festival circuit, these are usually films where they're not made to change the game. They're here just to tell stories authentically yeah. or to tell stories in a kind of a creative, unusual way. And so like when, when I just started falling in love with those kind of films, every time there was a new incarnation that Hollywood had its hands in, like whether it's a um, Harold and Kumar or even like, um, other, like, like Memoirs of a Geisha is a terrible example, but like <laughs> even that, even that was yeah, an yeah. example where Hollywood is investing in Asian images. Um, like I, I didn't care too much whether these movies succeeded or not because I knew that at the end of the day, I had my, I had the goods already. <laughs> it was in yeah. the independent world. And so, it, so last year happened, uh, to get back to your question, uh, with Crazy Rich Asians and Searching. And um, I was really excited about these movies in the sense that they're made by people who I admire. And, and I liked both immensely. Like I was heavily entertained by both films. Um, but I didn't believe that the, that's, necessarily new doors are open i will say in the last year uh it seems perhaps that there i i, I was a little too cynical um and i think it might be back to what you're saying about social media like these films happen and whether they succeed or they don't succeed there are people enough people talking about it that you can't ignore it yeah. and that hollywood sort of can't ignore the fact that that it's maybe not just about that dollar amount it's about all these people who are talking these are all potential audiences whether they watched it or not so so maybe things aren't changing and of course hollywood is in this moment now where um like buzzwords like diversity are i think they're starting to get the point that there's like that actually can lead to success yeah and they're willing to go out of their way to invest in that then again like i'm I, i'm not putting all my eggs in that basket um i'm still ever more invested in the independent scene because I know that we can't take any kind of success for granted. And at the end of the day, we have to support our, our most um, up and coming, struggling or quirky or just like non-mainstream artists as possible. Yeah, I love that you said that because I mean, for me as well, I've always found, I mean, like, don't get me wrong, I love a blockbuster, um, but I've always found um, independent cinema as being like where I find my favorite stories and like my favorite movies and I don't know if that's a function of like you know me being so many marginalized identities and that so much more of those identities are represented in independent cinema um without the kind of like you know that that overarching um aura of like we're doing it for representation or for <laughs> like diversity um but I feel like what you were saying like really points to this um 
the like roadblock that's there in terms of getting more representation or more Asian films is like the investing in it. Like it's Holly, are these big companies, are these big, uh, you know, distributors actually going to invest in Asian films? And um, like, I feel like it's, I was just talking to a friend about this actually, about how we had the movie yesterday that premiered in the beginning of the summer. And then mm-hmm. we have Gurinder Chadha's um, Blinded by the Light that's premiering this weekend, um, which are both movies that are about South Asians and like very classic um, Western music icons. Yeah. Um, but one of them yesterday was directed by um, Danny Boyle, who is not Asian. <laughs> um, no. And then Blinded by the Light is by, you know, like, Indian icon Gurinder who like did bend it like Beckham and my friend was like I'm the move like blinded by the light is incredible I'm worried that people aren't going to turn out to see it even though it's really good because yesterday recently premiered and then we started talking about like okay so we're going into this new new um not new, but we're going into a cycle where there's much more um, Asian representation than we saw maybe like five years ago. Um, but are the people that are making these movies, like who is getting the, who are these uh, companies investing in? Like, are they investing in the Asian voices to tell these stories? Or like, are they investing it in non-Asian voices to tell mm-hmm. these stories? And I, I was wondering if you had like any thoughts on that, because I feel like it contributes to a lot of what you were saying in terms of why you focus on independent cinema, where like there's a lot of people from our community being able to share their stories and share their own voices. Yeah, I, I think it's happening in a number of fronts. I mean, like Gurinder Chadha, like you mentioned, is an absolute legend. Um, yeah. And she's been hustling for for a long, long time. I mean, um, Baiji at the Beach was, I was like, over 20 years ago um so she's been doing this for a long time and for her now to get this this is probably her biggest release i mean i've been on like that was pretty big too um so she's a known entity and danny boyles oh yeah he's, he's not asian um and he's not getting a pass <laughs> with slumdog millionaire either uh, uh but he's also an auteur and these are both kind of auteurs in the sense that they're directors who are somewhat famous who can get a, a better they already have a foot in the door so for everybody else who isn't a legend, how are you going to get the foot in the door? And so Hollywood has, so, so those are cases where, yeah, the, the um, barriers to entry are still very, very high. Um, at the same time, there are new initiatives um, that, like, like with Film Independent um, and, and Sundance, and then like a lot of the studios and the television networks, they have programs now really actively trying to identify um, diverse talent. Um, Outfest is doing this as well. Um, and so, so there are pathways. Um, a lot of people go through these programs. A lot of them don't end up, quote unquote, making it. But someone like the Farewell, uh, Lulu Wang, who directed The Farewell, like she kind of came up through that system too. And now look at her. Yeah. Um, so, I, I'm, so, yeah, so part of me is like, you, as with most things in Hollywood, you have to have a foot in the door already to, to get it. And how, how is a person of color or a marginalized person going to get a foot in the door? And um, so, so I think that's going to become the challenge because I think Hollywood is ready to invest, uh, especially for like films that aren't going to cost them that much money. Like um, I don't remember how much Planet of the Light was bought at Sundance for, but it's still like 
pretty tiny compared to what they would invest in for a, a major Hollywood film. Yeah. Um, and people keep lamenting the end of what we call like the middle budget film. Like, yeah, we have the low budget films, we have the big budget films, but where are the ones in between that tend to be the ones that we remember 20 years from now? And it seems like that, that I mean, if, if they aren't interested in reinvesting in those kind of films, maybe uh, f- filmmakers of color and their voices can play that role. Yeah. And I mean, like, I think it just keeps emphasizing what you were saying earlier about how, like, the way that we keep this representation growing and more, I don't know, like abundant is to kind of like do this bottom up mentality where it's like focusing on the independent circuit and trying to like support um, new and up and coming voices or voices who like may already just be out there creating stuff, but don't have that foot in the door, um, you know, that other folks may have. Um, so that they can, you know, hopefully ascend the ladder as opposed to like waiting on like, you know, a top down mentality, like waiting on for like Fox or some, which is now Disney, right? I guess everything is now <laughs> as Disney. Is everything. Yeah. everything is, so essentially to wait for like <laughs> Big Brother Mickey Mouse um, <laughs> to green light, you know, these new films um, from new perspectives feels like something really powerful and something really cool. Um, I was curious. So like, I mean, we totally jumped into this conversation headfirst. A big reason why I was so excited to talk to you um, was that representation and visibility is a huge part of the Gaijin project. And I'm somebody who comes from a background um, in working in Hollywood and like studying film and all of that. And Um, For me, I've always loved the medium because it, you know, unlike other uh, storytelling mediums, like you get to see yourself on screen or hopefully like you get to see versions of yourself and it's that visual representation that's always been so affecting um, and the opportunity to tell a story that can affect so many people um, because film is such is an easier um, kind of medium to access for most people. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're interested in, in the Cajun project is kind of increasing that visibility. And it's not just for like queer Asians. It's like, how do we tell more and more diverse Asian stories and not just Asian American stories, because there's so many, like, there's so many different experiences. (laughs) Like you said, it's like a giant ass continent, so big. Um, and like, a, a big thing that's been so interesting to me and, and something that I think, um, you know, you can see with movies like Better Luck Tomorrow or A Crazy Rich Asians is that when you see these stories on screen or even something like Moonlight, right? Like when you see these uh, stories on screen, um, people are like, oh, like, you know, people from outside of the community are connecting with it. People from within the community are connecting with it and feeling empowered. And then you're starting to have this conversation that's you know, moving this marginalized community from, you know, the outskirts of society where they're very, very marginalized into a more, um, into a conversation that's held within society and less kind of like ostracizing, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, but one of the challenges for Asian representation is just the fact that it's so damn big. Like, 
there are so many different types of Asians and you're somebody who is a part of um, Pack Arts and the San Diego Film Festival, which is how we met. Um, yeah. And I, what is that challenge like? Like trying to kind of tell, be inclusive of, of these stories? Because I know at the Gaijin Project, like I try a lot to be very inclusive, but it's sometimes really hard to try to find iconography or things that you know are very very inclusive so we tend to really focus on like you know all asians take their shoes off when they go in the house (laughs) or like you know basically all of asia and the pacific islands eat rice or drink tea like you know yeah um so yeah so what have your challenges what have the challenges been like for you I love that you're talking about it even to the, to the level iconography because we, we go to the exact same issues. Like every single year we have a new design for our film festival. And we, we've experimented with doing it in-house or um, hiring people outside to draw graphic design. And like every time you tell people like, you know, just, just come up with some ideas, it's going to be Chinese, right? Yeah. It's going to be Chinese yeah. or Japanese. And, um, or it's going to look like, you know, like Chinese characters and like just, terrible fonts that we associate <laughs> with Chinatowns or like there's so many dragons. Like why, <laughs> why is it with the Cooney dragons? Uh, so one year we did do the rice. We had a rice cooker on our, as our logo for the year. Um, even though when I thought about it, like even, even rice cookers look a little bit different <laughs> from community to community, yeah. but it's the idea that I remember when um, like, like my parents' generation, uh, my parents are from Taiwan and uh, when they moved to the United States, they brought like pe- like their their generation of immigrants all brought rice cookers because they didn't know if they were going to find that in the United States. And of all the things to choose to bring, it was the rice cooker. Like that's that's that one piece of home that you've decided to to invest in. And and sort of like when you when you went to other immigrants' houses, they had rice cookers, and yeah. non-immigrants didn't have rice cookers. And it just became a way of of feeling like we are all like there's something that bonds us. And, but it's not like a cultural thing that bonds us. I mean, to some extent, rice is cultural, but it's also, in this case, it's really about the diasporic experience of feeling like you're an outsider, but of holding on to something that literally nourishes you. Um, and, and so I feel like at that moment, this is more than just trying to, to use a cultural icon, but really to think about what unites people in terms of their experience as second, first, second, third generation immigrants. So that was like, like, so yeah, that's one example, but otherwise it's really hard. And so a lot of our design then has just been a little bit more abstract, if you will. Um, it's really more about like, what do we just consider cool that might not even be coded as Asian all that much. But then if we do that, have we thrown out the importance of Asia to begin with or Asianness to begin with, if it just becomes abstracted into some kind of like contemporary design, like right. postmodern design? Yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, we're, we're stuck kind of in between. And, and so for my, my approach to cur- curating Asian cinema has always been, I can't bring my own picture of Asia the same way that we can't bring an icon to try to represent everything. Mm-hmm. I really just every single year, just leave it up to the filmmakers to show me their work. Like I don't go into it saying this year's themes are going to be this as if all of Asia or, or, or as if that, that's a theme that might be shared throughout all of Asia. So I, I intentionally keep it very, very um, loose and whatever goes, goes. And there's downsides as a curator. It's sort of like, well, what is our identity then? Like, what do we stand for? And, and so I, I could really just fall back on, well, I stand for everybody and as many possible voices as possible. Um, 
Yeah, so it's it's a constant struggle, especially if you are trying to have a, a um an a maybe agenda is the wrong word, but if you're if you're trying to make an argument about the importance of doing Asian cinema or whatever it is, or representing Asia. Um, so yeah, it's an ongoing thing, and. And so what I learned is just don't make it Chinese and Japanese. <laughs> like, <laughs> like if, if, if you want to have a Persian woman in a hijab represent our film festival, which we've done before, like I, I, I that, I'm okay with that. <laughs> like make yeah. people try to figure out where that fits in and why that, why not that. And then that act of asking themselves, why not this um, can be itself a kind of uh, statement. Um, so, so I've just learned just to stay away from Chinese and Japanese as no, as these the centers of of Asian like discourse. Yeah, and I love what we were saying about um, you know why doing things that kind of have people asking why this, why not that. Um, one of the big things uh, that we did, we have been doing with a Asian project, is a series called Disorient. Um, and so the whole idea, it, it's spelled out, speaking of Chinese, like very stereotypical Asian fonts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do it, uh, the design is in um, egg roll font, which is <laughs> literally exactly what you're thinking of <laughs> right now. Um, yeah. And the whole idea, like it's spelled out, it's dis uh, and then a dash and orient. And the whole idea behind it was to kind of disrupt the way that we in the West view Asia and Asians um, because it's so much based off of like you were saying it's very like East Asian centered very like Chinese and Japanese centered um, and very like orientalization and fetishization and like all of the Asians and things like that Um, and like the whole point of starting Disorient and like using that font was to really just be like try to force people to like think about okay, but like, why is it always this when we talk about Asians? Like, Mm -hmm. if, um, you know, one of our friends, Omid, uh, he's a Persian, um, like, writer. He he just wrote, like, a children's pop-up book, which is all about coming out. It's really, really amazing. Um, But he doesn't, quote-unquote, look like an Asian looks, right? Um, And so for him to wear, like, a disorient shirt, feels so cool because it's like pushing that conversation, you know, it's like this, why is it this and not that, Um, which feels really cool and feels like such an awesome way that you are centering um, like the way that you're programming, um, that it's this ongoing conversation of like, these are stories from our continent, our giant ass continent. And they can look like a million different things because there are billions of people on this continent. And what I tell my students is like this whole concept of Asia is a little absurd. Like who invented the the term for Asia, this continent of Asia, like Westerners invented this. Like nobody in Asia calls themselves Asian. Like if you go, no matter what country you go to, like that's an identity that like, like maybe like eighth or ninth identity in like a list of ways they think about their communities. Like it's not even something that's like this was an invention that made like things like colonialism and exploitation of labor like and that made that all made those things a little bit more sensical to people in Europe. Like that's the only reason why this exists. And when you say Oriental, that that's in the beginning. Like when 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 like the way that Edward Said talks about the Orient, he's talking about Palestine. He's talking about um, uh, what we would now call like Western Asia. 
Yeah. Um, and somehow that became East Asia, the or- Orientalism, um, because it's, it's just whatever the West wants it to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's and, like yeah. our identity will especially, yeah. I mean, uh, not even especially. It's like our identities are just like mostly defined by the West. Um, like we are what the West sees in a lot yeah. of senses. Um, which is really cool now that we're seeing, I mean, like to bring it back to representation in film, it's like when we're seeing movies like Blinded by the Light, uh, that is really kind of messing around with that. It's like this embrace of um, growing up like a third culture kid and how that intersects with uh, Asian identity or South Asian identity um, feels like this, uh, like in line with what you do with pack arts and what we're doing with disorient is like, you know, embracing the fact that yes, there's all of these expectations and these definitions that have been put on our communities by, you know, colonialism and, and the West and all of that stuff. Um, but it has also shaped our culture into something different and something cool as like third culture kids. Mm. And so how do we, and so it's cool to like see these conversations that are, embracing that and challenging it at the same time in a way at least for me where it feels like okay like I can be all of these things at the same time and I don't have to feel like my love of like Carly Rae Jepsen invalidates my like I don't know love of cubby cushy cubby gum or like classic Bollywood (laughs) cinema right like that feels like a it feels like that's a really cool storytelling moment that is I don't know I mean I have a few friends that are film like Asian filmmaker Asian American or you know Asian English uh filmmakers that are telling a lot more stories like that and is that something that you're seeing more and more of in like independent circles or is it just because I'm surrounded by very like these people that are doing it that I feel like it's happening a lot what, what kind of stories are you talking about um, just uh, kind of like this focus on third culture kids. So oh, like okay. the kids of immigrants growing up, like negotiating their parents, uh, you know, like the bandit like Beckham kind of thing mm-hmm. where it's like, make Alu Gobi, but no, I want to go play soccer. Yeah, but that doesn't yeah. make me a bad Indian, right? Right. I mean, that's the classic Asian American story, especially in, at least in cinema, at like in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. Like that, that's the enduring template for so much of Asian American cinema. I like The Wedding Banquet is an example of that. Saving Face is an example of that. The Farewell even is an example of that. Um, The fact that, yeah, you brought us to this country and you expect us to live the way you did. No, we're growing up in a new place. So so the intergenerational conflict is one of the classic storylines of Asian American cinema and literature. Um, and it's one that I think the reason it's, it's been so popular in the Asian American communities, because we all see each other and like, we all get what everyone else is going through. Um, the, the cultural references may change from family to family, but that conflict, uh, endures and, um, and, and yeah. And, and so, uh, yeah, it, it, it does not go away. And I, I see a ton of short films as well that are being submitted and don't get a lot of the same, um, attention because, they're not unlike feature films. They don't get like the press and no one's talking yeah. about them online, but a lot of there is where you really see the innovative forms of, of that kind of storytelling um, where you don't have to be beholden to the usual Hollywood structure um, of, of beginning, middle and end, or you can mess around with categories like fiction and documentary 
and, and, and tell that story in a new way that we hadn't seen before. One of my favorite examples is this film called My Sister Swallowed the Zoo. Oh my I think it's gosh. like 10 minutes long. And it's a Chinese-American woman who is doing, I think, like a Skype call with her mom in China. And in the beginning, they're just talking about, you know, her sister, how's people, how are everyone doing? And it just all explodes in this conversation, which I don't know if it's staged or how much of it is edited, but it's like listening on a, on a mother and daughter's conversation for 10 minutes and how all these tensions suddenly come to light. And all you see, in the, and, and the image, so that's the soundtrack. The images are just like um, pictures of them when she was young. And it's so powerful. And just the economy of the storytelling. And yeah, it's, it's absolutely unforgettable. And it's kind of experimental, but everyone I've shown it to gets it immediately. Um, so yeah, so what I'm, I guess the point is it's, it's ongoing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I have a friend um, that when we were talking about Crazy Rich Asians a while ago, he kind of likened um, the Asian American experience or like, you know, the kid of immigrants experience um, as being inherently queer um, Mm -hmm. as something that, which I thought was like a really powerful thing because um, it felt like in him saying that and then just going on to explain it, it made me feel like I had like as a queer Asian person, I had much more connection to the larger Asian community. It helped me feel like less outside of it, if that makes sense. Um, but his point was like, kind of like what you were saying, like it's this, this intergen, you know, there's this intergenerational conflict, um, you know, for many Asians, um, especially Asians who don't like quote unquote pass uh, as white or whatever in the United States, um, there's, this constant perception of the perpetual other um, Mm -hmm. that like, even if you were your like fifth generation, right? Like people are like, Oh, but where are you really from? Like, you're not still up here. Um, And then like the code switching where it's like, because our, um, a lot of Asian cultures are just so, so different from Western cultures. Um, I mean, like from spirituality to, you know, being so family-based and, and food and all of that, um, you know, there is a lot of, uh, you know, code switching between how we interact with our families and then how we interact with our friends at school, right? Like trying to figure out how to navigate lunchtime in a middle school cafeteria when you have like, I don't know, alu gobi or something mm-hmm. and like Indian food isn't hot or wasn't like very trendy and like, I don't know, the 90s or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so I was wondering if you, if you, I mean, like, how, what are your thoughts on that? Essentially, <laughs> that, that's I, I, my question. Um, do you have any reaction to that? I mean, it makes total sense to me. And um, I mean, you, you, first of all, you just said a lot of big things. Yeah, <laughs> and, I know. Yeah. So many big things. <laughs> and, uh, and really powerful and, and, and big big ways of rethinking a lot of our assumptions about Asian American communities. And I think a major one, especially if you look at the film side, is if you think about the intergenerational conflicts movie as foundational to Asian American identity making in film, the queer storyline has been foundational in the intergenerational conflict story. So why is it that so many of the, like the, the Asian American films that taught us to be Asian American are all queer stories. Like so many of them. Um, like the, like a wedding banquet, just the one I watched growing up, 
or saving face saving or like face, yeah. yeah or Ben and like Beckham and it, it, it just goes yeah, on and on like Beckham is a queer movie that is canon <laughs> like yes yeah canon. like in so it many different contexts queer. yeah no absolutely <laughs> yeah I just like reminding everybody that it absolutely is a queer movie <laughs> totally um and and so so okay, because so many of the questions about like what does it mean to be to feel different is is like like that like the queer story illustrates that so well and and in a way that's i think the asian american story sometimes um i don't know to me if it's just about oh my culture is different from my mom's like that's not quite enough because ultimately we watch movies because of desire like we we want we want to see people collide <laughs> we want to see people in love we want people to have sex and 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 therefore i think the queer story becomes that much more essential like I don't, I don't think I would like, like I would like a movie if it was just me and my mom talking about our cultural differences, right? Yeah. <laughs> like I, th- yeah. yeah. Um, but if it's about like my base desires and like why, who, like who do I, who am I allowed to love, um, and how are we, gonna, and then how are we going to work that out? Like that's like that. Any of these films can reconcile at all is just shows the, the miracle of of like of the melodrama. Yeah, um, and that's why we love movies like. That, that a movie like Saving Face can figure out through its own kind of weird twists of comedy and, and circumstance a way for us to feel like this family is okay. Like, that's really powerful. Yeah. Um, like they're okay and they can accept and, and they can be in love. Um, that's, that's incredible. Or like even with Bend It Like Beckham where like there's a joke that's like a harmless joke that like, oh, they're they're not Lebanese, right? Like the Lebanese joke of it all. Um, You know, when I was watching, you know, it was very harmless. Like I was like, oh, okay. Like they're making a joke about this, but it doesn't feel like they're like hating on them. It felt like, oh, you know, like the classic, um, you know, Asian parent expectation that like the kid needs to get married to like a good Asian boy, right? Like it didn't feel like it was rooted in some kind of like malicious homophobia, And I think for me, that was something that felt really cool because it was like, oh, like, you know, this, it's opening the door up for this kind of um, recognition between queer folks and um, just, and straight folks who are also like, no, we don't want to be forced into this specific relationship because our parents tell us to, like, we want to, we want to chase our desires, like you were saying. Um, yeah, and that brings up a really interesting point, which I've never thought about before, which is not only are a lot of these foundational Asian American films queer films, they're also comedies. Yeah. And another, another one I just thought of is, a, I think, 1990, 1999 film called Chutney Popcorn. Oh, my um, God. I feel like I've heard of this, and I have <laughs> on my list to watch forever, but have yet to watch it. It's, it's falling right into, like, everything we we're talking about. And it's a comedy. Um, and I think that goes to show that something disarming potentially disarming about film that it's the fa- it's a fantasy right like our lives are actually can, are not always they don't always come together like a comedy can so to see it on screen and people can laugh about it um gives us a certain utopic feeling that maybe maybe this can work or maybe yeah. we maybe this it's worth working on um and, and believing in ourselves with i don't know I, I don't i don't really have a theory for this but it's i think it's a nice it's nice that a lot of these are comedies they don't have to all be horrifying like traum- traumatic films about AIDS or something which those exist yes. too obviously and, and are great 
Um, no, I love that you brought that up because I think, I mean, in the conversation in LGBTQ cinema, right? Like in the new, new queer cinema phase that I guess we're in right now, um, it is that conversation where it's like, we don't have, we're not tragic. Like, let us not be tragic. Not all of <laughs> us have these like insanely really sad stories and also um, kind of like that base idea that, or base, I don't know, argument? Mm, that's not necessarily the right word, but, you know, marginalized people don't exist or not valid because of their tragedy, right? Like, we're, you, our stories don't deserve to be told just because they're tragedies. Our mm. stories deserve to be told because they are interesting and they yeah. are funny. They're nuanced. Um, I also love that Chutney Popcorn was directed by Nisha Ganatra, yep. who also did Late Night recently, which I... Full circle moment. <laughs> yeah, n- another major film this year. And another director who's just been in the scene for so long. I'm so glad that she finally had a chance to have that kind of Hollywood moment with Emma Thompson and Mindy Kaling behind her. Yeah, um, absolutely. But, yeah, but she's been doing the work for, for decades. Yeah. So I'm curious what, you know, you seem like totally my people uh, in how much you love talking about film because like it's literally me all the time. I get friends calling me being like, okay, so like what did you think about this movie? And I'm like, do you have 45 minutes? Because I have <laughs> um, But uh, I'm curious for you, like what was the first movie you saw that you felt like you, you saw yourself represented? Whether that be like literally represented or just like parts of you? Yeah. I think the most banal example I can give is, is again, The Wedding Banquet. And partly it's because my family's from Taiwan and it's a film that is about a Taiwanese-American family. Um, and it was, it's, I could pinpoint the exact scene I'm talking about. It's a scene that nobody remembers because it's totally unimportant. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, so and this is a movie about um, this guy in New York. He's gay, but his parents don't know. His parents live in Taiwan. And they keep telling, they keep trying to send him people, like girlfriends, to, 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 like, to like fall in love with and marry or whatever it is. And at one point he says to his parents, all right, I'm just going to, he just tells himself, I'm just going to give the most difficult qualifications possible, like two PhDs and speaks like X number of languages, who's also an opera singer. And lo and behold, they find this woman and, and like <laughs> tell her to go from Taiwan to the United States. And so he's picking her up at the airport and um, he's, he takes her bags and he's like, wow, these bags are so expensive. Oh, no, no, these bags are so heavy. And she says, and her response is, it's not my stuff. It's all your parents. Like they're, it's all <laughs> stuff that they're trying to send you from Taiwan. And that was such an aha moment. Like that's exactly what my family does. Like yes. anytime anybody's going back and forth from the U.S. to Taiwan or, or vice versa, like you're going to bring a ton of stuff for the other person. And so it gets totally unimportant to the plot. Um, it, as a joke, it, it was, it's a, it's a kind of funny joke, but for me, most of all, like I remember it to this day because I, I pointed at the screen and said, who else would get this? <laughs> and, yeah. uh, but I, I suspect a lot of people who are, um, who have immigrant families would get it. It's but totally I, Asian. I've like, it's fully Asian culture to like bring one entire suitcase. That's like <laughs> Costco supplies back. To oh Asia, my God. Right. <laughs> especially Costco supplies, like, like vitamins and yeah, all, all that stuff and like chocolates. Um, but yeah, so that, that was the moment for me. 
what was the moment that like made you want to be so involved with film like with pack arts and and doing what you're doing at, at studying film like yeah. what what propelled you into that so interestingly it wasn't an asian american film um it was another film from taiwan and, and i think it's it says something about the fact that maybe taiwan rem- remained at least in the way i was when i was growing up like this this thing that I'd heard of before I'd visited, but maybe I felt like I was missing a connection to it or an understanding of it. And in the year 2000, at the end of the year, there was a film from Taiwan called Yi Yi, uh, directed by Edward Yang. And I never was, I didn't even think, no, it was a Taiwan film, I don't think. Uh, I, I knew it won Best Director at the Cannes Film Festival. Like I, I was like a cinephile and I would follow whatever the Europeans did, right? And, and so I was like, oh, this is endorsed by, by the Parisian, by the French. Yeah. I should go watch it. And then I remember um, it's a three-hour movie. It's kind of quote-unquote slow. I mean, long takes, like uh, not very narrative-centered. I remember at the end of this movie, I, the lights came on this last scene and I was just sobbing like hysterically, like my entire shirt was, was drenched. And I was sitting next to somebody who was, didn't, who did not have that experience. <laughs> she's, uh, she's, well, she's actually Asian American too, but uh, she, she did not have that connection to it. And then, but that had me starting to think about, are there films that are just personal that, that maybe movies aren't great in universalist terms. It's not like a, fil- a four-star film to me is a four-star film to somebody else. But like it can be deeply important to me in a way that's not deeply important to somebody else. Um, and so that had me really starting to, to do research about um, audiences, like diasporic audiences. Like, if, like maybe a Taiwanese-American has a special connection with a film from Taiwan. Um, and, like, and similarly um, with any number of groups. Um, Including, um, including beyond the Asian American community, yeah. um, that there are diasporas for um, uh, foreign language cinemas all over the United States. Um, but yeah, so, so that, and, and so for me, it was also like, I found my, my story through something from Asia, like a continent away, a continent I'd never lived in. And that was also a paradox to me because shouldn't it have been an Asian American film that made me see myself or, or, or like tap deeply into who I am? Yeah, And so I realized maybe I have to study these two things together, that Asian American cinema serves a certain kind of um, importance to me to see these stories on screen, but maybe stuff from Asia too has, there's something in the DNA perhaps, or there's, 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 there's something about those stories that um, matter to me in a way that Hollywood films have not mattered to me, even though Hollywood is quote unquote my, or represents quote unquote my country of the United States. Yeah. Um, and then like that research had me realizing, well, Taiwan is also like a colonial country and it's like, it's become very, very Americanized in, very, in, in other ways, or it's, it's a cosmopolitan country or aspiring cosmopolitan country. And so maybe there's conditions in places like Taiwan that allow it to also resonate with me overseas. Um, and then I was starting to see that throughout Asia. And so that became a reason why I started really being interested in Asian film festivals. I know there's some Asian American film festivals that refuse to show anything from Asia. They say, these are two different things. And I totally get that. And, it, I, and they are two different things. Um, and so there, there's certain film festivals that just focus on films made by and about Asian Americans and they kind of bracket off like Bollywood or, or Chinese films yeah. or Japanese films or anime. Um, but I'm, I'm interested in those slippery ways in which seeing a film from like your parents' country or grandparents' country can 
can can can help constitute your sense of selfhood. And, I always um, think about cubby yeah. um, cushy cubby gum, uh-huh. like that, because it's like it's a classic Bollywood movie, but it's also like become this hallmark for all kind of like millennial bases. Like no matter like where you're from, like it's a joke that um, so at every wedding, they're going to play the theme from like, <laughs> and you know, kind of similar to what you were saying, it's, it, that's a movie from India where like honestly I shouldn't really have as much of a connection to it because I didn't grow up in India I just like grew up with my parents my parents experiences of India and like what they told me about it um but like that movie has like it deeply affects me like (laughs) consistently like I will cry the entire three hours I just I love it so much like I want my future partner like if my partner is going to propose to me, I want her to like reenact a specific scene <laughs> Kabi Kushi Kabi Gum. Um, well, I think it's also like significant that Kabi Kushi Kabi Gum, that's an NRA film or it's yeah. partly an NRA film. Part, so yeah, partly for sure. So it's also like, it, it's, it's considering the possibility that there are South Asians all over the world. And yeah. Of course it's doing it in the name of a certain kind of like patriarchal uh, <laughs> nationalism yeah. maybe. Oh, yes. um, but like we have like, and this is one of the great lessons of queer cinema. Like we have to be able to watch things through a lens of the camp or, or whether it's camp or like a certain kind of um, f- finding in it what's ma- what matters to us and, and embracing it. Um, and that, that's a great example. <laughs> Kami Gum. De- definitely, definitely. And then DDLJ too, another like. MRL. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I think something that you were saying that's so powerful is like, the way that you've been interacting with film is kind of through this really broad lens that's also specific. Like uh, I always talk about how um, some of the most universal stories are the ones that are told about a very specific event, right? Like, so just telling a very specific story to, um, I don't know, like the farewell, right? Like that's a specific story to that family, yet it's also Mm -hmm. very universal at the same time. Like there's a lot of S, I haven't seen it yet, but um, you know, it feels like experiences um, that I know, like I know that experience, I'm able to connect to it. Um, and I love you saying that, like you tell, talking about your experience of how you've gotten into film, because I feel like that's one of the most powerful facets of the medium is that you're just like, exposed to all of these new worlds that intersect, even if they feel like so wildly disparate. Like, I think for me, I always think about how I, when you're talking about like, does a movie have to be great universally for it to be like objectively great? And it's like, I don't know, like I, the movies that I very much love, like I will fight someone to the death over loving the Star Wars prequels, but that's (laughs) that's like in culture, everybody has accepted that they're not great. And I'm just here being like, no, I really love them. They meant a lot to me growing up. They still bring me so much joy. Um, and just because everybody else says it's not good, does that not mean, or I mean, does that mean it's objectively not good? Does that reduce the power it has over, um, you know, like personal audiences? And I feel like the same could be said for a bunch of like the really shitty and campy, um, queer movies or like campy, um, 
you know, like independent movies that we have out there that may not have like that objective, like Roger Ebert score, right? <laughs> but are still really important in their own way to individual people. Yeah, and I think that um, it has implications for what we do with film criticism. Like, what is film criticism for then? Um, in some ways, it's there as a consumer guide, whether we should watch it or not. But I think that film criticism can also be storytelling. Um, like, like, this is, like, through film criticism, we can learn about each other as, as viewers, as people who have dreams and, like, who, who connect with, with others. Um, so I, I've always maintained that I would rather live in a world where everyone loved every single movie, no matter how quote-unquote bad it is, than a movie yeah. where we all hate all movies. Right? That's, that's not a world I want to live in. And I'd rather know why someone, someone loves the Star Wars prequels. I have, I've, I've been on record saying a lot of um, like unpopular things about the Star Wars films. Uh, so I totally get where you're coming from. I, I, yeah. Let's just say episode three is actually one of my favorites. Oh my Anyways. God. I love ep- that entire opening sequence was the re- I remember watching that and being like, I want to work in film. Like this is wow. insane that they like George Lucas and this team of like people behind up, you know, like the giant crew that they absolutely had on that movie. Um, they created this insanely immersive world. And that's like a possibility. Like these mm-hmm. human beings did that. I want to be a part of that. And I, I just like every single time I watch that movie, I have that same feeling where I'm just like, holy shit, this is insane. Like, this is so magical. Yeah. And there's something to be said about just tying it to like, memories of growing up. Um, and like that, that this film was validating for you at a certain time. And, and it's great that it still has that power for you, but like that we, we grow too and movies become touch points in our own development. And I, I'm way more interested in that than whether a movie is three or three and a half stars. Yeah. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Um, And I don't know, I just, I've had so much fun talking to you and I feel like I wish I could come back to school just so I could take your classes. (laughs) Like really great. And I miss literally only talking about movies all the time. I wonder if my students feel the same way. Oh my God. I feel like when you're an undergrad student, you're just like, school. Part of you is like that. And then you graduate and you're like, wait, why didn't I take more advantage of that? (laughs) Why didn't I study more? Um, But Brian, thank you so much for doing this. We're kind of winding down here. I feel like we could talk forever. um, And I just want to keep picking your brain about um, representation and and what you're doing with PAC Arts. Um, But I wanted to ask you, I mean, like, I'll just make you come on the podcast another time (laughs) and or just listen to your podcast so I can get my fill. Um, but the one question that I wanted to ask you before, uh, we say goodbye, uh, is for you to shout out your Bayesian of the week. (laughs) So anybody in the Asian diaspora that you are inspired by, you think is cool. Um, it's like hot on Instagram, (laughs) anything like that. Um, so I'm going to just do a really, really nerdy pick. Like okay. this is as like film nerd as it gets. So I was in New York last week. Um, I was there for the Asian American International Film Festival. They also have a festival called Japan Cuts. I love everything they do. Oh no, you cut out. Hello, hello. Hello, can you hear me? You cut out. Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Okay, can can cool. you hear me? Yes. Okay. 
cut out right uh you were talking about how you were just in new york okay i'll, I'll say that part over again yeah all right so i was in new york last week or about a couple weeks ago for a couple of film festivals the asian american international film festival which is the the og asian american film festival has been around the longest I was also there for a festival called Japan Cuts, which is a great festival of Japan, Japanese cinema. But on the side, I was going to the film at Lincoln Center, and they have this incredible series right now all about um, the, the best first movies of the 21st century, like a director's debut, the best debuts of the last 20 years or so. Total film nerd experience. And I just, I, I mean, like that alone made it a great time. But the fact that this series and so much of what's happening at the Film Society of Lincoln Center is curated by this guy named Dennis Lim, who's just, he's not really talked about in Asian American circles, but like as, as a curator, as a person who does criticism, who teaches film, who writes about film, yeah, Dennis Lim has for decades been one of my great heroes. And so be able to, to be able to go to New York and see his work in person and just be like moved by his intellect and his like creativity about curating and how we should expand ourselves with film. Like I, I, I bow down to my Bayesian Dennis Lim. Oh my God, that's amazing. I want to go read so much more about him now. Uh, <laughs> which I love totally the purpose of Bayesian of the Week. Uh, <laughs> um, but amazing. Um, well, Brian, again, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I had such a blast talking to you. Always love to talk about movies um, and also love to connect with another Star Wars prequel lover. <laughs> I, I can't believe that was already an hour. Thank, thank you yeah. for that. <laughs> yeah, I know. An hour flies by, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, before we go, um, where is there anything that you have coming up that you'd like to promote? Um, you know, would you like people to gently stalk you uh, on <laughs> social media, like self-promotion corner? Okay. I, I don't do a whole lot on social media, but if, if you, you want to see what little is out there, um, I'm on Instagram, Twitter. My handle is who's Brian. That's H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. Um, but definitely listen to Saturday School. Um, we're in the middle of one of our uh, ongoing seasons right now. So we have like every season is a different topic. And uh, right now we're doing actually a lot of what we've ta been talking about today, which is Asia, films from Asia that imagine Asian America. So that's what we're, we've been um, uh, putting out episodes about. So Saturday School Podcast, check us out on all the different podcast um, platforms. And yeah. of course, um, if you happen to be in Southern California in November 7th to the 16th, the 20th annual San Diego Asian Film Festival will be happening then and we'd love to see you. Yes, everybody go to that. It's a fun time really we i had a chance to be involved uh last year this year i don't know what time is anymore <laughs> i don't either sometime in the past uh and it was a blast and i definitely echo and can attest to all of the things that brian has said about pack arts being this really cool space that is um you know bringing a lot of visibility and and uplifting a lot of asian film and asian voices and not being very specific to what country they're from or whether they're Asian American or not. And it feels like this amazing space for like all of our cultures to just be like celebrated and seen. Thank you. Um, with that being said, um, thank you so much again, Brian. And um, I guess I'll have to talk to you soon. I will talk to you right as soon as I end this recording where we will talk <laughs> okay. 
we will yes we'll talk i'm really bad at ending these things if you can <laughs> so i'm gonna press re end record right now <laughs> uh, thank you